Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 is divided into two parts. The first is prayer, and the second is prophecy. The prayer of Daniel arises in his soul because he has studied prophecy. Daniel is a student of the Bible. Daniel's an old man at this point. He came to Babylon as a young man, probably a teenager. He purposed in his heart that he was not defiled himself. Almost 70 years now have passed, 70 years. And Daniel has not defiled himself. He stayed true. He's prayed every day, three times a day at least, morning, noon, and night. And this prayer that we look at this morning is what a man prays when he's been studying the scriptures day and night, meditating upon the law of the Lord. He'd been studying the prophecies of Jeremiah, who, by the way, was still back in Jerusalem prophesying on up until just very recently. So they're, they're roughly contemporaries. Been studying the prophecies of, of Jeremiah and learned some things there and diligently reading the Word of God, praying to the Lord each day, and the Lord gave him some insight. And we noticed a couple of times in this, past, in this book that Daniel will see a vision or dream a dream. The Lord will reveal something to him. And he noticed he, he would say how his, he, he was anxious and he would fall down or he was, his color would change was the way he put it on one occasion. He was, he was emotionally and physically struck by what had been revealed to him. And I think this is what happened to Daniel here. This is not a vision, it's a prayer. But the Lord had showed him through the scriptures as he studied faithfully the whole testament. And by the way, in this passage, he refers to Jeremiah. He refers and quotes out of the Psalms. And he also quotes the law of Moses. So there's the three parts of the Old Testament. He studied the whole Hebrew scriptures that were extant at his time. And he had everything except about three prophets. The post-exilic prophets weren't there yet. Uh, Zephaniah, Haggai, Malachi, but the rest of them were including uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And as he studies, the Lord hits him with something. And this is what he gets hit with. How unbelievably sinful God's people have been. He got a vision of his own sinfulness. The sinfulness of the people, the sinfulness of their leaders, their kings and their princes, and how they had led them and guided them into all kinds of abominations. And just like Isaiah, when he saw the throne room of the Lord, he was smitten and said, I am undone. I am an unclean man. And that's the way Peter felt on one occasion with the Lord. And now this is the way Daniel feels. But he has a sense of justice in his soul because the word Daniel means Dan means judge and El means God. So it's God is judge or God will judge. And what we have in this prayer is we have a theodicy. That is, we have a defense of God's justice and righteousness in bringing the horrible calamities he has brought upon Israel for their sin. He has the right perspective. He says, you know what? We deserved it. We had it coming. God had warned us repeatedly about it. We didn't, for generations, we didn't listen to the prophets 
that the Lord sent. We didn't pay attention to the Word of God as it was taught. We laid aside the Word of God. And we have sinned dreadfully. And God is bringing nothing but His oath, His covenant upon us. God swore what He would do if we obeyed, and He swore what He would do if we disobeyed. And we have disobeyed, and God is bringing that calamity upon us exactly like He promised. God is being true to Himself, and to His oath, and to His righteousness. And God is just, and God is righteous, and God is a judge. God is not capricious. God is not arbitrary. God is not a tyrant. He's a wonderful and righteous and loving and merciful God, but He has to punish that which is detestable to Him. And that is the sins of the people. And I'm not going to talk too much about Israel anymore. I'm going to talk to you. This is God's people. Daniel is praying a prayer that's very much of a New Testament prayer. He's talking about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Savior, the coming of Christ. In the second part of the chapter, there's kind of a, 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 a timetable, a linear timetable that's laid out to let you know about when the Messiah will come. In fact, in the flesh, Christ did come, according to these predictions of, uh, of Daniel. But Daniel is seeing that God is justified in what he has done. And so he realizes that he needs to plead for mercy. And he does so not based on the people's merit, but he does so based upon the righteousness, the judgment, the justice, the character of God. He appeals to God's character, to God's name, and says, do this not for our sake, but for your sake, O Lord, because you have made this promise to Israel, and we know you're going to keep it. Now, Lord, uphold that promise. Have mercy upon us according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, just like David had prayed 500 years earlier. So let's stand if you would, and I'll read the prayer to you. I don't know if you noticed or not, but I've summarized it <laughs> a little bit so that we could sort of follow it as we go. In the first year of Darius, a descendant, a descendant by descendant of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of the years according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, I have sinned, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandment and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day in the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in the lands in which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws." 
which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. We have, he has confirmed his word, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there's not been done anything like has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as it is this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to the pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and, and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's look at the very end of the prayer first. And if you have your Bible there or your bulletin, you can look down. And uh, there at about verse 17, he's in the middle of his prayer. He said, Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayers of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Daniel knew how to pray a routine prayer if you think of it that way. Morning, noon, and night, he was disciplined, regular in that discipline. His soul was edified. This was a praying man. But here, he's a broken man. He is torn up. He is emotionally spent. For he sees that what Israel has done is sin so dreadfully that God has no choice but to keep his word and to punish them. I remember years ago Billy Graham saying, if God does not punish America for America's sins, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. And that's the way it is today. America has transgressed God's law. We have not listened to the prophets. 
We have tried to turn everything God said into a lie. Take the book of Genesis, just the first few verses. How many things God says that we as a culture don't believe? In the beginning, God, oh no, we don't believe that. We don't believe there was really a beginning. Just kind of billions and billions and billions of years ago into the dark recesses of the never, never uh, past. In the beginning, God. Oh, there's no God. Atheism is the prominent viewpoint. God created man in his own image. We don't believe that. Freud taught us different. We know we're not in the image of God. We're just a bunch of cells all put together, some kind of protoplasm that got here by evolutionary processes. Male and female created he them. We don't believe that at all. We see there's a whole range of genders. Gender is fluid. There's just nothing to the way God created mankind, male and female. And then I saw one today that just sent me over the edge. It wasn't this day, it was this past week. It was an article in one of the big newspapers. I didn't read the article, I just read the headline in Apple News. You know how it pops up and you get the headline and then you... If you want to read it, you have to subscribe. Well, I've not subscribed yet, <laughs> but I did read the headline. And now they're rethinking the whole idea of a seven-day week because it just don't make any sense. So the cycle that God went to a lot of trouble to bring about in the creation in six days and resting on the seventh and keeping everything in seven-day cycles and all of that, they've decided we don't need that anymore. After all, we are our own God. We can structure time and the cycle the way we want to. We can have a three-day work week or an eight-day work week or, or no work week at all. Just have it go on and on and on and on and on without regard of what it might do to the creation that God put upon the earth, mankind and all the animals and everything else. We don't have to follow anything that God has said, much less all of that Old Testament law, all those thou shalt nots. And all those abominations. God lays out abominations. A false balance is an abomination unto the Lord. Yet what kind of crooked business dealings do we have going on in our country every single day of the week? And all of the abominations of lying. A lying lips are an abomination unto the Lord. The political system lives on lies. One of the things we looked at last week was some of the nasty things that the little horn will do, and we'll see the little horn again before we're done. But the little horn is a tyrant that hates God, that blasphemes God. And twice in that passage, I didn't get to it last week to talk about it, but ran out of time. But one of the things he does is he casts truth to the ground. What's the greatest casualty in our own day? Truth. Truth in education. Truth in media. Truth in the courtroom and injustice. Truth has been cast to the ground. And how does the little horn take power? How does he wrest the power that he has over people? The Bible says he does it by deceit. He lies to them. And they believe it. You're going to tell me our country's not in that condition right now? All these abominations in the Old Testament? My goodness. Uh, he that lies with a man as with a woman is an abomination. That's not an abomination. That's just a choice. That's a fulfillment of a lifestyle. That's being you, being yourself, doing what you think you ought to do. And all these abominations, there's more than that. There's about three times that many in the, in the Old Testament. 
We just ignore them. We've not listened to the prophets. We've not listened to the law of God. But if we had listened to the law of God, we'd see one thing. We'd see this particular principle. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he reap. If you sow corruption, you reap corruption. If you sow to everlasting life, you reap everlasting life. Well, our culture has sown to corruption. And corruption brings forth nothing but corruption. So we have a depraved culture. We've been turned over to our own lust. We've been turned over to vile affections. We've been turned over to a depraved mind. What is a depraved mind? A depraved mind is a mind that can't think straight, that throws out logic, that throws out evidence, that throws out scientific understanding and becomes just a freewheeling, no center, no foundation process within itself. Kind of a postmodern thought, kind of a standpoint epistemology. Throwing it all out. And we've seen this before, but now we just said, and Daniel sees this in the life of Israel. Now, listen to what he says that the people of the God has done. They have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, and rebelled, and turned aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants and your prophets. Just think of that. Look at those words. By the way, there are different Hebrew words that are used there, and there's sort of a crescendo of, of, of depravity in each one of them. We have sinned. Well, we throw the word sin around all the time. You know, it's kind of a cultural term, you know. You know putting on a black sock with a brown sock, you know, it's a sin. It's, it's, a, it's a faux pas. You know, it's a peccadillo. It's a fashion mistake. That's not what this means. This word is a, the main word that's used for sin, but it is buttressed by the next word. We have done wrong. What it means is we have acted criminally. The proper way to look at us, our sin is not that we have offended someone or we've made a little mistake or that we have somehow kind of gone our own way and gone astray. The way you look at sin properly is you look at sin in terms of criminality. You have sinned against a law. It's the law of God. It's the God who sits as a judge over all the earth and over each and every individual. So what you have done, you have sinned against the lawgiver and the judge. And he is a righteous ruler, and you have rebelled against him. You have transgressed his law, you've set his law aside, you've flown in the face of his law, and you have absolutely violated everything that he set forth. And everything he set forth, he will tell you over and over in the Old Testament, is for your good. The law is for life. It's how you are to live on planet Earth. The creator of the Earth and the creator of you knew that y'all had to live together. Somehow the environment and the creature has to live together. So God gave you a constitution and a societal uh, structure so that you can live on planet Earth without destroying each other in the first generation. And now we're turning our back on that. And what's happening to our overall civilization, our overall society? It's crumbling. The things that we need, the safety is the guarantee, the right to life, the right to self-defense, the right to, to, to work and to own property. 
the right to have a family and have that family prosper and be protected and that family have another family. All of that stuff is being assaulted in our day and time. And that's exactly what happens in a sinful culture. And Daniel begins to see it. And that's why he puts on the sackcloth and the ashes. And that's why he gets on his face before God and begins to pray this, this, this woeful lamentation of a prayer. He probably at this point had just finished reading the lamentation of Jeremiah. And he realized what Jeremiah realized, which made him the weeping prophet. He realized what Isaiah had seen in the throne room of God. And he saw the righteous, upright God versus the sinful, criminally depraved, hostile, vicious, decaying, rotting, self-destroying humanity. And he broke his heart. And he begins to cry. There's no sophistication in this prayer. There's no long flowing pray, uh, prayers like the, like the Pharisee prayed in the temple in Jesus' day. This prayer is broken. This prayer is, Lord, incline your ear. Open your eyes. Grant us mercy. Hear. Forgive. Pay attention and act. Delay not. It's interesting, he's ready to get the process moved on in the next part of the, the chapter. God's going to show him just how, how God's going to move the process of history along to bring about the long-expected Jesus. But at this point, they're in the middle of the calamity. They're in a good portion of the punishment that God said he would give them. Now, I'm going to give you an assignment and if you haven't done this ever, or if you haven't done it in a long time, and you think about it seriously, it's going to almost make you sick to your stomach. But I've got two verses, or two chapters in the Bible I want you to read. So write it down and read it. One is Deuteronomy 28. It describes the blessings God told Israel they would have. And then he told them the curses. And just read that list of curses. And the Bible is not hard to understand. You, it's hard to believe. It's hard to accept. But it's not hard to understand. And you'll see the calamities. And think about the calamities in Israel's day. And think about the calamities that are com coming upon us in our nation. And to us as a church. And also to our whole world actually. Read Deuteronomy 28. All of it. It has 60... I think 68 verses. <laughs> That's, I think, one of the longest chapters in the Bible. Then read also Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26. It's a similar passage, a shortened version. And ask yourself, would a loving God really do this to anybody, much less his own chosen people? That's the question to ask you. And yet all through this prayer, Daniel reminds us, it says, O Lord, the great and awesome God. Um, I don't like that word awesome. It's used all the time, but it's not right. I like the old King James better. It said awful. God is not full. He's not, he doesn't have some awe. He's full of all. He is awful. But the 
connotation of our modern day has changed, so the translations change. God is more than awesome. God is all full. And the root meaning of awful is he does awe-inspiring things that would shock you and drop your jaw. And he is that kind of God. And he's great, he's powerful, and can do what he wants to. Sometimes he's called, God is called terrible. That too has changed its denotation, connotation in our modern thinking. But it means that he is one who can wreak and will wreak terror when it is deserved and when it is justified by his standards of justice as the judge of all the earth, which Abraham said, will do right. But notice here these two words. There's two more big Hebrew words. Who keeps covenant and steadfast loving. The covenant is the bereath. It's the covenant that God made all through the Bible and he begins to expand it. It was with Adam. It was with Noah. It was with Abraham. It was with Moses. It was with David. It was with Jeremiah and a new covenant. God keeps the covenant and says, Hesed is the other one. The steadfast love of the Lord in which it says, I promised it. I will perform it. And listen, he says, and those who love him and keep his commandments. That's who he keeps covenant with. That's who he bestows his steadfast love upon, are those that love him and keep his commandments. What did Jesus say to us? If you love me, keep my commandments. A direct quotation from the Old Testament. Nothing has changed in the character of God. He's still exactly the same. And that's why what we have here is true, a picture of true gospel repentance. And... Daniel sees that, and he gives, and we're out of time, but we, the whole rest of this portion of the prayer is a pouring out of his heart in genuine remorse, in genuine regret, a godly sorrow that works repentance. He repents of his own sins, his people's sins. He recognizes the sins of the Father were the same and it had led them generationally to this point. And so he repents. And he, he says here, and I'll just go ahead and, and close with this, how to the Lord belongs all of the glory because of his great justice. The word righteousness is the word justice. You talk about no justice, no peace. God believes that. If there's no justice brought at Calvary, there's no peace with God. And that's what God did, by the way. When you read Deuteronomy 28, and you read Leviticus 26, and you let your mind think and meditate upon it, you will see that essentially all of these curses came upon Christ. And he bore them all for us. The curse of the law, which ultimately, of course, is death being cut off. One more little thing here I'll, I want to mention. I've got so much, i just got to mention one more thing. Uh, back, uh, let's see if I can find the verse number here where it is. About verse 13, 14, right in there. Yeah, verse 14. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. There's an interesting uh, phrase there in that very first of the 14th. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and brought it upon us. The word has kept ready is the word for watching. And it's the word that's used for a watchman in a city. In other words, God is watching. 
And he has made ready. He's, he is up to speed. He's garnered the evidence. He knows the accounts. He's kept up with all the ins and outs and the comings and going. He knows the sin of every sinner. And he knows the sin of the nation. He knows the sin of the church. God has kept ready the calamity. There's an appointed judgment. And God has worked his way up and garnered the evidence and stored it and kept it in a careful way. And God is not mocked. He will bring about some kind of godly, righteous justice upon the people that have sinned. And you don't want justice at God's hand. You want mercy. One of the big things in, in, in our modern cultures is, is they're showing us how unfair God is or how cruel God is or how God is just so immoral. He would, he would sacrifice his own son. That's child abuse, cosmic child abuse. And on and on and on, God gets criticized. This particular passage is a theodicy. It's a defense of God and his character and his righteousness and his justice. And when God brings calamity upon a sinner, a sinful nation, a sinful person, a sinful people, a sinful church. He's righteous in doing so. It's justified. It's long time coming. This is the same God that provides a way of escape for every single person that will put their faith and trust in Jesus who bore the wrath, the anger, the curse, the calamity on our behalf. Matt, you better come lead us in the service, because otherwise I won't quit. <laughs>